Hello and welcome to episode 227 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and as usual, I've got my favorite co-host with me here today. Hey T, how's it going? It's going well. So um, before we get into it today, I just wanted to, uh, as we alluded to earlier this year, we wanted to try something different with the podcast. And if you're viewing this on Spotify or SoundCloud, you're not going to really notice any changes but you know if you do get to this on our website waterstechnology.com we'll have a story built around it and uh, it'll be yeah more of a value add um tony why don't you tell us a little bit about that sure so this week we have on uh, uh georgia masali uh, chief investment officer of equity investments at panagor asset management boston-based quantitative uh, investment manager over 40 billion assets under management and we also have uh, mike chen the firm's director of portfolio management and sustainable investing and they joined to talk about esg and you know we, we recorded this last week but I, you know if you look at the storm for those that aren't here in america um, there's a huge storm that's hitting specifically Texas on up through the Midwest that's knocked out a ton of uh, – that, that's taken out uh, power uh, for millions and millions of residents. It's caused huge amounts of damage, uh, accidents, all this kind of stuff. And when we talk about ESG, this is why you incorporate these factors. This is one of the reasons why you incorporate ESG is because mm. as storms get bigger and more powerful – they become much more disruptive and they become much more regular, but that's just, that's just the E of the ESG. And so George and Mike join, we talk about a range of topics. Um, and I thought it was, it was just a really good, interesting look at a firm that has been really at the forefront of kind of the ESG push, um, in the investment management side. So hopefully people enjoy it and, uh, get some value out of it. Okay. Let's get to it then. Till next week. See ya. Okay, and now uh, we are joined by George Musali, Chief Investment Officer of Equity Investments at Panagora, and Mike Chen, Director of Portfolio Management and Sustainable Investing at the firm. Uh, gentlemen, first of all, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having us. So we're going to talk about ESG, but I think it's important just for the listeners to understand how you guys incorporate ESG into the investment process. I, I don't know who wants to start it off. George, if you want to go first, and then Mike, uh, you can kind of round it off. Yeah, so I think it's it's used a lot in a, uh, for managers these days in a lot of different ways. I think we have a unique way of looking at uh, ESG. Uh, you know, when we uh, think of our process, uh, you know, we're building portfolios, but using a systematic quantitative process. Um, but we're trying to quantify our, our fundamental insights. So uh, perhaps other managers might look at ESG as a screening tool or removing uh, you know, some companies from the universe. We believe that you know companies that have good governance and treat their uh, uh, customers and employees well and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, look out for the environment those are the characteristics of companies you need uh, to succeed in the long run. So we see them as, uh, you know, what we call alpha factors uh, rather than risk factors. Uh, you know, you need those to be a winner just as you need good cash flow and strong growth and good profitability. Good. And Mike, you know, you've spoken at a couple of our events in the past, but, you know, I know you, you've been instrumental in building kind of the infrastructure around that 
that data intake, I guess. Maybe talk mm-hmm. a little bit about where you're coming from. Yeah, so, you know, thanks for having us, first of all. And uh, I think to echo George, right, you know, we think of ESG not as a um, screening purpose, just say we don't want to have, um, you know, certain certain names that might be offensive to our investors. But, you know, we really think of it as uh, just another insight or another data source into measuring how well corporations are run. Right. So if you think about it, uh, most of the corporations these days don't actually make tangible things. The biggest company these days are, you know, technology and financial companies for the most part. Uh, you know, they make decisions, they make, uh, they make contents, they make intellectual property, which, you know, which creates a valuation. These are so-called intangibles, right? And ESG metrics, uh, are, uh, can, can give you a lot of insight into how these uh, intangibles are, are, are created and, you know, how, how they become ever more valuable. So, you know, we, we look at ESG as a, as a way to generate alpha. So as a result, um, you know, we, we do a lot of actually research looking at, uh, looking at ESG issues. And a lot of these research, as, as you alluded to, requires, uh, requires unusual data sets. And that's actually a big challenge for ESG field in general. But we feel something that, um, quants are perhaps more adapt to in, uh, compared to other types of management, uh, styles. Um, and, you know, certainly for Pandagora, we have been working in, uh, in a space of, you know, collecting alternative data, big data for quite a while. And a lot of these such data can be used to, um, to, to extract insights into ESG issues. Yeah. Mike, l- Mike, let me stay with you just because for me, when we're talking with, um, for, for our stories that we put up on water technology, when we're talking people, as you kind of alluded to, it's this idea of ES and G. It, it, just separately, the E, the S, and the G are big topic areas with, mm-hmm. and then underneath it, there's a diversity of, of kind of different factors that can be melted into it. So there are obviously a lot of challenges in this space, but maybe the, to start, when you look at ESG, what does that term mean to you from an investing process? What does ESG mean? What's the definition of it, I guess? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. So when we think about ESG, we, we, we typically think about it from an alpha first, right? We define an issue where we believe that the company performs well. Uh, you know, they, they will, they will reap the financial benefits and we want to invest in those companies. So, so when it comes to ESG, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a lot of it is actually somewhat very intuitive. So take the example of uh, G, which is the, probably the, the most well-known of the ESG issues, quality governance. You want to make sure that you, you have management that make quality decisions. You want to make sure that their incent- governance uh, inc- incentives are aligned. You want to make sure that they have good processes in place so that they don't you know violate rules all the time, right? So under each of these ideas, then, you can go out and hunt for data sets. Now, when it comes to a social aspect, right? Um, you, you want to make sure that you invest in companies that treat their employees well, that have um, that have good uh, good good uh, good reputation in the minds of their consume of the of the consumers. You want to make sure that uh, you know the the companies are uh, have have very very productive employees, and you know there's not a lot of uh, scandals, right? So these are um, issues that are associated under S field, but you know could also um, lead to higher higher valuation. And then when it comes to E, right, um, I guess this is probably perhaps the most concrete of ESG, uh, of the E, S, and G field. So, so, you know, these are issues such as, you know, um, the, the car, the amount of carbon that, 
that uh, that that they put people put out into the atmosphere, or companies put out into the atmosphere, the waters they use. But is this can also have an economic angle to it if you think about it, because carbon is a byproduct of uh, all human activity at this point in time. There are actually no act. Most companies don't actually have a massive carbon capturing skill. So for the for the most part, they they all produce carbon into the atmosphere, whatever they do. So if carbon is a byproduct of the manufacturing or production process, then for a given amount of sales a company generate, if they can achieve this amount of sale utilizing a lower carbon output, this must mean that all else equal, they have a, actually a more efficient production process, which ultimately leads down to um, to to being reflected in financial statements and higher and higher um, corporate valuation. Okay. I want to get into the kind of the, the, the different factors and how you blend them. But George, you know, for you as as a CIO, what do you view? What is the objective of ESG incorporating ESG into a portfolio? What is the ultimate investment objective that you and your team are looking at? Yeah. Uh, so so n- number one goal, right, is to provide uh, you know the maximum you know risk adjusted return to our, our clients, right. Uh, and, you know, we have to have a strategy behind it, a cohesive strategy. You know, our view is, you know, we need to take a, the, 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 you know, long-term view of companies, um, and, you know, find the ones that are going to be, uh, you know, the, the most profitable, the most innovative, uh, in, in, in the universe that we're looking at. Um, and, you know, this has morphed a lot over time, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Mike alluded to it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, when, when you look at, uh, companies, you know, 50 years ago, uh, you know, they were mostly companies that engaged in manufacturing items, cars, turbines, things like that. Mm-hmm. So if you just look at the, in, uh, uh, balance sheet and income statement, you know, there, there's all the, your answers to identify which companies ha- are doing well, right? You look at profitability, capex spending, depreciation. You know, uh, today, uh, you know, it's, it's not as, uh, obvious, you know, and, and easy to capture, uh, which companies are doing the best. So, uh, you know, a component of it, uh, are, are, you know, are, are things like profitability and, 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 and those types of hard metrics. Um, but a large chunk of it, you know, we, we didn't, uh, delve into ESG, you know, uh, you know, perhaps like other managers because our marketing group kind of came to us and said, oh, we need an ESG product to, to fill this, this bucket. Uh, you know, 2010, we started looking at ways, uh, the governance structure of a company, uh, impacts the future, um, profitability. Right. So, you know, at the time we just went through the great financial crisis, you know, you had uh, Lehman Brothers, right? You had uh, the CEO stack the the board with all these retired octogenarian, you know, guys who who, who weren't in the finance industry anymore. You know, and, and now we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, complex derivatives that didn't exist when when they were, you know, when, when they were working. Uh, so that was not a great structure for a company because you see it, it led to its demise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, versus companies that we look at, right? When, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, 
you know, he, one of the conditions is I want to rebuild the board. Right? And he put um, like a Google CEO at the time uh, before they were both in the phone business, uh, consumer product CEOs, um, you know, and and, uh, uh, and and other prominent people from diverse backgrounds that would help rebuild the company. Right. So yeah. that's you know, that was a signal. Right. It was right there in front of you. Um, but the question is, you know, you, you can do it anecdotally, which fundamental analysts might do. But what we really need to do to harness the power of that is to collect that same kind of information for every single company across a whole universe back in time and then simulate and say, you know, that's a, one thing we say. We're like, you know, um, let, let's define a board by how you know diverse it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then let's go back 20 years and say, well, if we bought the companies with a diverse board and, and, and shorted the companies, you know, with with the CEO's friends, well, how would that do? Right. Yeah. Uh, and we can prove to ourselves that that actually works. And then you can, you know, we have other tools as well. How correlated is that with profitability or how is correlated that with, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the compensation practices of the company. So, you know, you might, what, what a fundamental analyst might can't do, you know, humans are unable to do in their head is capture all this information, uh, you know, so when when our goals when we're building a portfolio is combine the hard statistics with these you know kind of more objective ESG metrics uh, in the optimal way to to produce you know the best outcome for our clients. Let me ask you both about this because I've heard and because I can't fully always get my head around this, but I've I've been told about like ESG factors that it's kind of turning a dial that there isn't necessarily just yes these. 12 different things we combine together, we have it and it'll always be right and that's perfect. And George, you kind of mentioned it's about the kind of morphing of which uh, factors are, are maybe most important. But so let's talk about like a hypothetical. You have a company, really strong returns. Um, there's no environment, they're environmentally efficient, not, you know, no kind of climate risk challenges around them. They, the employee satisfaction is through the roof. They're a good community, um, uh, corporate citizen, but they have terrible diversity on their board and they have what some might view as questionable political contributions. How do you, how does that kind of factor then just, how do you kind of come in mm-hmm. and say, I mean, they're, they're, they're producing the returns. They're good on two of these silos. This one silo they're not doing good on, but as maybe our investors care more about social justice and social responsibility, they're not that strong there. Do you ditch them? Do you? Because mm-hmm. if they're producing or performing, how do you kind of kind of ignore some mm-hmm. other stuff, I guess? Right. And so let me uh, let me start with one aspect of it. There's kind of two aspects of, of that question. The first one is, uh, you know, what we call materiality. Right. So as you said, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, the E and S and G pillar, uh, and, and they're all important to some respect, but not equally as much for every company. Uh, there's ways to deal with it. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, entities out there that, you know, do it by, for example, industry, you know, obviously, and there's some obvious answers for energy producers. The E is the most important. Maybe for tech, we know that they, they focus on S, right? The, you have to uh, attract and retain the most talented people. You got to, you know, have, have be, you know, uh, be a good place to work. 
Um, but we don't think that goes far enough, right? So in our framework, uh, we came up with a, a, a materiality process that cuts through even down to a much more granular uh, uh, level. So I'll give you an example, right? If you did it by sector or industry, media, you know, you have Disney and you have Netflix, right? They're both media companies. Uh, you know, at top, uh, top glance, you might say, well, social maybe is important. Environmental isn't that important, right? There's not much, you know, physical buildings and stuff like that. But take those two companies, right? Uh, Disney is definitely environmental is an important aspect, right? They have the cruise lines, they have the theme parks, it's a very large physical footprint. Uh, you know, you need to make sure that, uh, you know, Disney is, is, cognizant of that and doing things to minimize their environmental impact. Whereas Netflix now, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it is, it's a very small physical footprint. There's only a few thousand, um, uh, uh, employees and really social is more important for them because they have that issue of, you know, the programmers who code up the algorithms to, you know, offer you up your next, uh, you know, see series that you might want to watch sure. and the content providers that find the next uh, big series. Those are the most important people on Netflix. And if they walk out the door, you know, the, the, the company's ruined. Gotcha. Uh, so we have a quantitative framework that 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 uh, measures companies on different metrics, right? Like environmental impact, uh, um, you know, social and governance um, uh, areas. And to determine which factors are important to, to which uh, companies. And Mike, you know, maybe build off of what George was saying and then maybe also just what I've heard you talk about, but this idea of using kind of quant- quantitative ideas uh, in this and, and building a flexible framework, I yes. guess, so that you can easily kind of adjust this and really balance out that materiality. Can you, can you talk a little yeah, bit about absolutely. that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so when George mentioned that uh, materiality, that is with respect to alpha, right? You know, which of the E, S, or G considerations are more material to um, to a portfolios uh, or set of stocks alpha return. But you're you're right. So um, when when an investor buy into an ESG portfolio, they don't just want alpha. Uh, they want to you know their portfolio to exhibit certain characteristics or have certain impact on the uh, on the on the world at large, right? So so you really need to balance the need for alpha, in addition for the need for um, sustainability profile or impact. And how do you do that? Well, I, you know, when we started, um, you know, down this uh, down this ESG path about roughly five years ago now, you know, we, we did a literature, we did a land, uh, sort of a competitive landscape survey uh, because we'll have all these factors. We thought, you know, we could we thought we could offer a pretty compelling solution. But when we did some survey, we were very frustrated. First of all, it's uh, there's a lot of um, different solutions out there and then different different acronyms, uh, which we will not go into here. I don't think we can solve it here. But what we notice is also that they offer very specific ESG solutions. So, for example, a climate solution, a general ESG solution, a social solution. These are all very, very important, you know, important objectives in and of itself. But. Um, to us, ESG is a, it, it's a form of values investing, right? So it's really what the organization and the, where the asset owner cares about. And, um, everybody's a little bit different. So what I, I think there's a lot of debate still in the industry and in academia about 
how do you define ESG? What is ESG? Which ESG matters, right? Uh, we think that, I mean, for the most, you know, you, you can make some progress in that, but I, I, I don't know if it's ever possible to define a unified set of ESG that everybody would like. Mm-hmm. You know, say, so, so, you know, so you have these five metrics and they're ESG. Nobody else is, nothing else is ESG. And, you know, if you, if you're an ESG investor, you must, you know, buy a product that's limited to one of these five or all five, you know, a combination of all five uh, metrics. So what we have done is, um, since we're quants, we have a very, you know, uh, strong portfolio construction capability. We, we said, you know, you know what, we'll leave that flexible, you know, because our, 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 uh, our insight is that ESG is very individual and very, uh, values dependent. So we want to basically let the, our asset owner have the ability to choose what really matters to them, right? Once they can tell us what matters to them, we can basically put together the, uh, a portfolio that, that basically optimizes not just along alpha, but also along the, um, along the ESG metric that they care about. And I think also one advantage of being a quant is that, uh, because we can construct a portfolio, um, many, many different ways and slice and dice and analyze. Uh, what we can do is, um, you know, suppose a, a, a client comes in with a, with a particular ESG metric and, um, but they, they, they wonder, you know, if I really go very heavily into this optimized portfolio along this metrics dimension, how much alpha would I be able to, would I have to give up? And this is something that's very, very hard for, I would say, a more of a fundamental manager to answer. But because we're quants, we can literally draw, tell you, how how much you can expect on average, you know, under normal under some assumptions that your portfolio your performance along the alpha dimension might detract, right? Not always, but potentially. So you know, we call this the curve, the um, the ESG alpha efficient frontier. So this is one of the things that we can we can show our show our clients that hey, you know, if you want to go really really heavy, say um, you know, sixty percent of your portfolio model weights are all into, you know towards optimizing along this metric, you might have to give up, say, you know, 50 basis point per annum of return on average. And, you know, Mike, let me just ask you, because we, we recently spoke with um, uh, the head of BlackRock Sustainability Group there, and she was talking about how one of the, the big challenges that the industry faces when it comes to ESG data is this idea around so many of these metrics are point in time. Mm-hmm. And... But really, when you build your models, you want something that's more predictive, more looking mm-hmm. into the future, right? That that's where it sounds like um, some of the biggest challenges are faced today. So bringing those kind of quantitative, fun, um, not fundamentals, but you know, kind of quantitative ideas into this market, how do you change that where you have this this information that's just a point in time, as I was saying, you know, maybe the diversity on the board is terrible today, but that maybe isn't what it's going to be 10 years yep. from. How do yep. you kind of change that down the line um, predictive model? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. So I think especially this is where quants are um, have a unique advantage. So uh, as, as you're very well aware of natural language processing and generally machine learning is a, uh, is a very uh, becoming ever more common tool in the investment industry, especially for us quants. And, um, you know, I think this is where these advanced technology can really help. So as you, you're right. So some a lot of the companies would say, well, you know, this is our carbon footprint this year. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to say it's, it's 10 million tons. 
right? They just read that number and say, okay, well, it's a horrible company. It's a lot of it's a lot of carbon they're putting into the atmosphere. But what if the management also put off a, a very concrete and specific plan? Say, okay, and this is what we're going to do about it. We're going to introduce this type of technology into our manufacturing process. We're going to, you know, reduce our carbon by this percentage at this at this point in time, right? And here's, you know, you could you could if you can somehow read into that report, which is more of a which is more of descriptive descriptive rather than just you know pure pure number, mm-hmm. you can actually gauge. Management on on uh, on whether their plans are are effective, and more than that, you can actually gauge them on whether their plans are are credible by looking at the the, the words and the and the and the context of the words that they use. So so you can actually gain a lot on forward looking information on on uh you know project protective information if you apply some of these advanced technologies such as NLP. Yeah. And George, for you, you know, as as chief investment officer, what what is the most important thing? What's the greatest challenge and where do you hope to get to when we're talking about that kind of future predictive model building? Yeah, so I mean, I I think uh, uh, the the challenge uh, is that it's very hard. Right. Uh, um, You know, we we've a lot of times, uh, you know, our ideas come about by just sitting around uh, uh, thinking of what types of characteristics of companies would lead to outperformance, right? So, uh, you know, after long discussions, uh, we go out and look for this data, right? So a lot of times uh, quants tend to do the opposite, right? I, I, I wake up every morning, I get a whole bunch of emails in my inbox, half of them are, trying to sell me data right now in the last two weeks the 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 most common one is wall street bets scraping data right so uh that's a very reactive uh way to do it right um if you're looking for something and you have a piece of if you give a data scientist a piece of data they're going to look for a signal right yeah Uh, and then make up the story after right uh what we do is kind of the opposite right we come up with our fundamental idea and then go out and look for the data, right? Uh, and in that way, we might leave, you know, the negative is we might leave things on the table, but we're pretty sure that it's going to work. Uh, and then when we actually put it in the model and, and, and see how it works live over years, it, you know, we have a pretty good hit rate of, of, of things working. Um, now, the thing is that, you know, I've seen it evolve, you know, over the years. And it goes from, you know, when you don't, the, the challenge is when, when it's hard to find the data, the, 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 uh, the alpha potential is very high. And once everybody has the data, it goes away. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, I'll you know, give you an example in the, in the past, right? Like 15 years ago now, you know, I, we, we, we sat around in one of these discussions and, and realized, you know, same store sales for retailers is a very important thing. Right. Uh, every all the retail at the time was Gap and you know, Home Depot and all these guys. Um, uh, you couldn't find it anywhere. So we actually had to have interns type it into a spreadsheet and we'd load it up into our model. Yeah. It, were, it worked great. Right. I mean, it was the biggest alpha producer in the model for a long time. Then one day Bloomberg has a field, same sort of sales. You type it in, you download it, it's gone. Right. So that's the thing. Right. And I think a lot of the 
places in our model, uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago, it was a very, very basic thing, one-dimensional, backward-looking type uh, piece of data. Uh, but that was okay. It worked great because we're the only ones who had it. Today, it might mean for the same concept to capture, you know, uh, um, you know, customer strength or something. Now it, 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 it requires terabytes of data and a machine learning algorithm we have to do on the cloud because we don't have enough computing power at Pandora, right? Sure. Uh, the, the, the idea is the same over the years, but the amount of data we need to capture and, and be ahead of the curve is, is exponentially bigger. Yeah. Mike, I'll, I'll, I got a question for you and then maybe we'll do, cause there's so many other questions I want to get to, but we only have a, a limited amount of time. So we'll do maybe a lightning round after this. But when we're talking about the alpha research platform that was built and the flexibility building it into that framework that you were talking about before, as George was talking about, there's a half-life to the data, and that half-life is just getting shorter and shorter constantly um, mm-hmm. with, with all the providers that are out there, and just the, the way to disseminate data is just changing. There's also this idea that you can put in data. If you have the right data sets, you can have the data tell you whatever story you want. So how do you make that research platform to avoid that data bias, I guess, where you're actually finding alpha as opposed to just let's keep on pumping in some data sets here until we get what we're actually looking for. Yeah, exactly. So that's a great that's a great point. Um, So, you know, as quants or as humans in general, right, if you if you already made up your mind that you're going to make it work, you know, somebody gives you a data and say, okay, I'm going to do something and make it work. You can you can always craft story around it to 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 be to be um to be there to you know tell a story right so i think you know first of all as quant research you always have to be honest i think that's that's really uh very important actually being honest with yourself and um and i think um you know because panagora tends to have a very stable team i think it helps that you know all of us are have been here for a while now so you know we and we uh if we you know you can you can sort of maybe um Fool people a couple of times. You put out something where it really doesn't work, but you tell a beautiful story and, and it works. And, and, you know, you get it through and put it into the model. You know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And after a while, your reputation will be damaged, right? So I think, you know, the fact that Pentagor has a very stable team and all of us have, have worked together really, uh, for quite some time. And, you know, um, we, we all tend to be very honest with each other and very with ourselves. I think that's very important. And I, you know, George mentioned that we don't, test an idea because we've been pushed the the data uh we test an idea because we we have an idea you know through discussion through observation through our daily experience makes fundamental economic sense then we go out to find the data for which we can use to test our idea i think that's really important uh, because if you just test the idea that other people come push you know sell to you well before they sell to us i'm pretty sure they've approached at least 10 other shops Right. And maybe five of the shops take them up on it. And, you know, two of them actually find some alpha they can, you know, they can implement. That is still, if you're the third one, that is still, you know, depending on the market, that is still, you know, you're not the only one with that idea and that basic construction. Right. So, so that leads to reduce alpha. Um, but it, on the other hand, if you have an idea first and, um, and you go out find a unique data set, that that can um, that can test that can validate or invalidate your idea. Um, the chances of 
colliding with other people in the market with very, very similar or even exactly the same alpha idea is, uh, is, is much less. And the third thing is that we don't, and again, a very, very important point is that we don't test an alpha factor's efficacy just purely on return. If you think about it, right, return, stock return is, uh, there's a lot of things affecting stock return because it can only go in two directions, up or down, right? And, you know, it could be going up because your fundamental idea, the idea that you're testing is right, or it could be up just because, well, let's say, you know, the Fed is in a super easing mode and there's cheap money and you just happen to be, you know, buying, a, you know, your most of your stocks is in a certain sector and that sector has been going ballistic. So you don't know, right? So, but what you want to do is you want to develop, again, it goes back to having a fundamental investment thesis first. You want to develop an investment idea. So say my investment thesis is, um, I'll give you a very simple example, higher internet sales, Higher online sales should lead to higher stock return. Obviously, you can test, you know, firms with higher online sales and see if it's return, uh, you know, see if it correlates well with return. But there's so many stages in intermediate, in, in between higher companies with higher, uh, online sales and, and higher return that you can test for, right? So for example, higher online sale must necessarily means all else equal higher overall sale, which must necessarily means all else equal, uh, higher, higher profitability. Which, you know, and then, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a higher turnover because you, you, you know, you, you're, you're actually moving your merchandise. You want to make sure you test each one of these intermediate stages, right? Before you get to the, uh, testing the, uh, the price return. So these are, this, this is a step, uh, what we call ancillary testing. You test for, um, the, the things that you think that must be true if your hypothesis is correct, but it's, but it's not the price, price, uh, price return itself. So, um, this is a very important step in our investment process. This is something that we, we, uh, we, we all do. And, and finally, just, uh, you know, um, George, not only you know, being the, the, the CIO, he's also the, the director of research. So he, you know, when we, when we put out ideas, we don't just do it in isolation, right? We, you know, we're very collaborative. We share with our, our colleagues, you know, we discuss with our colleagues and, and, uh, before, before it is approved to, uh, to be, you know, um, uh, put into the model, we, we have, uh, we have meetings. We present the idea. Everybody can attend. Everybody can ask questions. Uh, many of them do ask fairly tough questions, not in the spirit of meanness, but really making sure that, you know, this is actually a, a well, well thought out, you know, idea and all the, all the possible corner cases have been, have been looked into, you know, because we're investing for, um, for, for our investor, right? And that's a very, um, that's a very, uh, heavy responsibility that we, one, we don't take lightly. So we want to make sure the ideas and the, uh, the alpha models that we build are the best one that we possibly, we can possibly do. Okay. And then in the, the short time we have left, just quickly, I'll each ask, ask each of you one uh, last question. George, I'll start with you. During the pandemic, as it relates to ESG, what's kind of the one big lesson that you learned about incorporating ESG and how it relates to something as unforeseen as Black Swan that we have here going on today? Yeah, I think so. What we've seen is uh, 2020 was actually a very good year performance-wise for our ESG metrics. Uh, so I think, you know, what, what, while you might think that this might derail, uh, people's perception of, you know, incorporating ESG and maybe focusing on much more basic things, I think what it's shown us is that, you know, th- these are becoming even more, uh, forefront issues for investors. 
uh, and that, um, you know, incorporating them and, and considering these uh, will only get more important as time goes by. Sure. Uh, and I think the other thing is uh, you have to see, uh, you know, there's been ups and downs in the market for these, but you really need to focus on the alpha part to, to yep. get it right. So you're not, you know, uh, underperforming if energy goes up or something. Gotcha. And Mike, last word, you know, obviously is she investing? It's on the rise. Everybody's talking about it. It's top of mind. Uh, institutional investors care about it very much. What's the greatest challenge facing um, ESG investing going forward here into 2021, uh, into 2022? Yeah, I, I would I would say two things, really. Uh, first is uh, greenwashing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a this is a responsibility that everybody in this in this field has. You know, we want to we want to you know, I think we want to make sure that, you know, uh, there's credibility behind the offering. Right. You know, because I think this is what is really turning off a lot of potential investors out if, if they find out a lot of the claims are not exactly based on truth uh, and uh, because of the just the, because there's a pressure to market and to advertise your capability, um, you know, lead some people down to greenwashing. So I think this is a huge challenge. And I think the comp and um, the European Union is actually doing something about it now, you know, with their, with their various regulations coming up. But collectively as an industry, this is a responsibility on everybody. I think that's number one. Number two is that um, there is a, so ESG is becoming very hot. I would say that there's actually a, a bit of a hype, uh, if anything, around ESG investing. Sure. And, um, you know, you can see it in some examples of, say, some battery companies that haven't shown a profit in the last 10 years going up by 6,000% mm-hmm. in 2020. Um, I think... Um, I think hype is dangerous, right? Yes, ESG is important. We want to look at, you know, we want to invest in companies that are good ES, that are good corporate citizens, that are stewards of environment, that treat their stakeholders right. But it's also important that they actually are profitable and good companies in general, right? You shouldn't buy some company and own some company just because they say, oh, we're, we're, we're creating the next, um, you know, you know, bad, next generation battery where, they have nothing to show for besides a slide deck, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so it goes back to what George mentioned that you know you need to focus on alpha in along with ESG, and, and luckily because of materiality, in many instances you can find the you can find an intersection between the two. Uh, but in uh, you know, uh, I think it the best way to actually advertise ESG is to is to show that well this is actually something that you can do not only for the better of the, uh, the the society and the environment, but also it, it helps your portfolio. But um, if it's if it's on a you know if, if it's on a very hyped up bubbly uh, path, um, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't help anybody. Well, gentlemen, it was good stuff. I, I, this is these topics. Each one of those questions we could easily talk about for thirty minutes. So I, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, good stuff. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us.